This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Neglected no more. I'll talk to Andre Picard about his new book on how to fix long-term care. And history wants your story. I'll tell you about a fascinating COVID journaling project. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A new law in Nova Scotia prevents senior couples who require care from being separated. Under the Life Partners in Long-Term Care Act, spouses will be placed together in long-term care facilities effective this month. This legislation helps ensure life partners can stay together as they age, even if one person may need a different level of long-term care. The new act will allow spouses, common law, and domestic partners to be placed together at the highest care level required. Seniors' advocacy groups, including CARP, applaud the move, saying spouses deserve to stay together regardless of their health situation. Baby boomers retired at a record pace last year. On average, 2 million American boomers born between 1946 and 1964 have retired each year since 2011, according to the Pew Research Center. But in 2020, that number rose to 3.2 million people. Researchers speculate the pandemic might have sped up retirement decisions for some, and many benefited from the staggering upsurge in home prices. 65 to 73-year-olds sold their homes at a higher rate than any other age group last year. It was, it was hard, but it was fun because we were successful often enough to make it worthwhile. And we felt that we had done our, our bit toward the end of the war. That's World War II codebreaker Julia Parsons, who turned 100 this week. She says the secret to her long life is to keep telling people... I can still do that. Parsons was one of thousands of women who deciphered encrypted messages sent by the Japanese and German forces. She took two years of German in high school and was sent directly to decoding German submarine traffic. But after serving in such a fascinating job, she found it difficult to return to normal life. A veterans club in Pittsburgh marked her birthday with a parade. Former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev threw a Zoom party this week to celebrate his 90th birthday. The Soviet leader during the 80s is widely credited with helping to end the Cold War, but his critics blame him for what they regard as the painful breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. Gorbachev has been in quarantine and hospital for months as a precaution during the pandemic. Messages of birthday congratulations rolled in from world leaders. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world.
What will it take to finally fix our elder care system in Canada? It's a question that's at the top of our agenda. And now, award-winning Globe and Mail health columnist Andre Picard has a prescription in his new book, Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of the Pandemic. I reached Andre in Vancouver. Your book is called Neglected No More. Uh, Is that wishful thinking? There's a little bit of wishful thinking there, but there's also a prescription. Uh, There's a reminder in the book that everything we need to do to fix elder care, we're already doing it. So we just have to find our successes and we have to scale them up. So, you know, I try to end the book on a positive note that all this is doable, all this is affordable, and we just have to get to it. Do you believe that the pandemic has uh, raised awareness in the general population of just how bad this is? Yeah, I think there's no question that the pandemic really shone a light, a spotlight on on many failings of public policy, actually, but uh, most graphically on the the long-term care home situation and uh, just revealing how people live, uh, how they're fed, uh, how they die. Uh, So I think it it forced us to look at something we didn't really want to look at. What is it about what happened this time that you think will really stick with people? Well, I think uh, this time we can't look away just because of how many deaths there are. You know, there have been 22,000 COVID deaths in Canada, and about 16,000 of those have been in these institutions for for elders. So it's really a a, a tragedy of unprecedented proportions. So I think if we if this doesn't make us act, I, I don't know what will. So I hope that that's what the good that comes out of it is. We're forced to do something. So we know there's poor staffing. There's a poor setup. There's poor infection control and. No accountability. Uh, You wrote very damningly that nursing homes can get away with almost anything. Yeah, it's true. There's a zero accountability. No one's really in charge. It's not really a system. It's a collection of different types of homes. So I think, uh, you know, all that stuff, yes, there's lots of technical stuff to do, like staffing and fixing the infrastructure and you know, better rules. But I think it all starts with uh, we need a profound philosophical change. We have to say to ourselves, our elders matter. We value them. And if we do that, if we have that philosophy, then the other stuff is all just technical implementation. So I think we, I think everybody loves their parents and grandparents, but that needs to be reflected in public policies. It needs to be reflected in budgets. And once we do that, uh, as I again, it's all fixable. It's all doable. How do we do that? I'm I'm thinking about here in Ontario. I'm thinking about the terrible report when the military went into some of our homes and and discovered these disgusting conditions. The premier was outraged and and he swore to create an iron ring around long-term care and that just did not happen. No, clearly it didn't happen and it's because we have to, how do we fix this? We have to start with the most basic problem. The most basic problem in these homes is lack of staffing. Uh, we need to get people who are working in there. We get have to get sufficient numbers to provide hands-on care. We have to ensure that, you know, the main reason that this 
uh, pandemic got so bad in the homes is many workers work in many homes. They were vectors for the spread. Uh, they had to be there. They had to do the work. But if they were all full-time workers, uh, if they were all trained, if they all had uh, personal protective equipment, we wouldn't have had this problem. There are countries in the world that have zero cases of COVID. There are many others who have zero cases of deaths in institutional care. So all this was preventable had we had uh, a decent system in the first place. Here in Ontario, again, eventually, the government stopped people from working in multiple homes. Uh, and there was an interval between the first wave and the second wave. And in Quebec, in uh, the province that you're from, they tried to staff up. They launched a, a training program. People were paid to train. And uh, they had lots of people sign up. Here in Ontario, it wasn't done. I mean, how do you rate those two responses? Well, I think Quebec's on the right route. Uh, you know, they promised to hire 10,000 workers. They managed to hire about five. Uh, so it's an, it reminds us that this is not easy. Uh, until you f- fix the conditions of work, it's still going to be hard to, to attract people. So I think Ontario made all these announcements about we're going to build more beds. But to me, that's the the worst possible thing that come out of this is if we just build more uh, homes with not enough staff. You know, we don't need more mediocre care. We need better care. So I think the that starts with the staffing. Get that right. Get the, you know, have some standards of care. So we have a minimum of four hours of hands-on care for everyone in institutions. That's going to fix a lot of the problems. And then if you make the work environment attractive, you're, you're going to get those staff people and you're going to keep hold on to them. The government announced some changes that are going to take effect in the coming years. Um, It seems that they didn't really get the difference between fixing the system for the long term and the emergency. Yeah, I think this too, you know, I say in the subtitle of my book, the urgent need to fix uh, elder care. And it, it has to be urgent. You know, there there was an announcement of standards and they come in near the end of 2022. Why, why the wait? There's not really any excuse for waiting anymore. We've been neglecting this for 25, 30 years. We, we've got to do everything now quite urgently. We are in the midst of yet another long-term care commission and uh, the minister for long-term care testified and she testified, yeah, I knew all these things were going to be a big problem. I knew. I'm a doctor, uh, but I didn't want to overstep. Uh, what does that tell you? Well, it tells us that there is some ingrained ageism in our politics, in our policies. Uh, anyone with even the most basic knowledge of infectious disease knew in February that these were sitting ducks. These homes are cruise ships on land without the fancy buffets. We knew what was happening in cruise ships. We saw massive deaths in Italy and Spain. They were all in elders. We knew what was coming, and we just didn't raise the rampart. I think that's really the... We have to ask ourselves, you know, I, I've been saying to people, what lies and what excuses do we have to make to ourselves to justify our inaction? And I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I, I think it's a really fundamental question we have to ask. What do we need to do? Well, we start with that philosophical question. We say elders matter to us. And once you do that, once you do like Denmark, Denmark decided in the 1980s, we see this demographic uh, change coming. It's going to mean a lot of older people 
what are we going to do? And they said, we're going to keep them in the community at all costs. Only the most, only people who absolutely need to be in a home will be in a home. Everyone else will be cared for in the community. So what did they do? They have excellent home care. They have subsidized housing for seniors. They have community programs that provide respite so, uh, so people aren't lonely. Uh, they have all these practical things that are not any more expensive than, than Canada in the end run. Uh, uh, Denmark actually spends less per capita on health care than Canada, and they have much better care, much broader services, especially for the older population. The biggest frustration for me is we've done every one of those things in Canada, even in Ontario, on a small scale. We just have to scale up our successes, and we, we have many of them. Andre Picard with a new book, Neglect No More. Thank you so much. Thank you, Libby. That was Andre Picard. His new book is Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of a Pandemic. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, how to make your pandemic story part of history. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Usually, history is written only by the powerful. That's the starting point for the Pandemic Journaling Project, which wants to ensure that what you and your family are living through is not forgotten. I talked with Sarah Willen at the University of Connecticut. What gave you the idea to start this journaling project? Last spring, uh, together with my colleague at Brown University, Kate Mason, we were, you know, we're, we're anthropologists. We're used to spending time with people, talking to people, learning from people. We couldn't do that, but we could tell that the world was changing around us. And it was important to find a way to record how, you know, normal people, everyday people were experiencing the uncertainty and the fear and the anxiety uh, as we watched this pandemic hit us like nothing we'd ever experienced. And at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's kept a journal for much of my life. And I had a sense that I wanted to have space for me to tell my own story. And I figured there would be a lot of other people who'd want the same. And that writing things down or chronicling your experience could have some, some benefit in terms of finding ways to cope. You say that history is usually written by powerful people and you didn't want that to happen this time. History books typically tell the big picture story and they're told by people who are in positions of leadership, positions of government, positions of power. Often they're influenced by the stories that we read in newspapers, but they tend to leave out the stories of People just living their lives, trying to to manage, trying to struggle along, do their jobs, take care of their families and the people they care about. And so, you know, we, as, as the kind of research we do, reminds us that everyone has a story and everyone's story matters. And so part of what we're trying to do with the Pandemic Journaling Project is make a space where everyone from people who are directly affected and really on the front lines of the epidemic to people who've lost someone, 
to people who are just, you know, living their homes, doing their jobs, maybe doing them remotely, maybe not even feeling that much of a change. Um, you know, all, all of us are able to, to tell our stories and make them part of that big story that becomes, you know, big H history that we read in history books. Do you think that we are not getting enough of that through uh, old-fashioned media and social media? When we talk to historians, we know that they often struggle to find the everyday impact of historical events. And some of the most interesting history comes from historians who've been able to look back at things like memoirs or journals or personal letters. And there's a real texture and an intimacy to the sorts of stories that historians can tell when they have access to to people's personal stories and personal narratives. Um, so that's one important point. In terms of social media, you know, we, we know that social media is a place where we're often performing. We're often trying to maybe put on a good face, maybe take a certain pose. Um, there's something really performative about social media. And the Pandemic Journaling Project has become a very different kind of space. It's a space in which people are writing anonymously. So you don't know who's whose voice you're hearing, and you don't have a chance to like or to show an angry emoji. You just have a chance to kind of hear from others about their experiences. Um, so it's, it's not a performative space. It's a space for, for really looking introspectively, for really looking around and reflecting on the way this pandemic is affecting our, our world, um, the businesses around us, our families, um, and a way to gain some perspective without the, the dynamics of social media. Why anonymously? We do ask some demographic questions when people first join. So we'll ask about people's age and about their level of education and, you know, a little bit about where they live and some other basic details. And then we leave them be to speak as they wish. They can write, but you don't need to write. People can record their journal entries and upload audio. They can upload photographs. We really wanted to create a space where we as researchers take a step back and we give people the opportunity to reflect on this time in whatever may, way makes most sense to them and without feeling like they're under the watchful eye of other people. How much of a response have you had so far? We've got about 1,300 people who've contributed so far from over 40 countries, including Canada, although we would love to hear more Canadian voices. And so far, people have contributed almost 9,000 individual journal entries. And again, some of those are written, some are audio recordings, some are photographs, and some are a combination of them. And the entire project runs bilingually. It's both in, in English and in Spanish. But people can create their entries in any language they wish. How do people join if they're interested? It's very easy. You can just go to www.pandemicjournalingproject.org. There you'll see a curated set of entries that people have chosen to share publicly. And if you look on the top right, you'll see a yellow box. You click on the yellow box, the yellow button, and that will take you to our main page and show you where you can join and start a journal of your own. Sarah Willen, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. That was Sarah Willen. To tell your story, go to pandemicjournalingproject.org. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. 
Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.